Part two, chapter nine of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter nine. Six weeks passed. Rodolphe did not come again. At last, one evening, he appeared. The day after the show, he had said to himself, we mustn't go back too soon, that would be a mistake. And at the end of a week he had gone off hunting. After the hunting he had thought it was too late, and then he reasoned thus, if from the first day she loved me, she must from impatience to see me again love me more. Let's go on with it. And he knew that his calculation had been right when, on entering the room, he saw Emma turn pale. She was alone. The day was drawing in. The small muslin curtain along the windows deepened the twilight, and the gilding of the barometer on which the rays of the sun fell shone in the looking-glass between the meshes of the coral. Rodolphe remained standing, and Emma hardly answered his first conventional phrases. "'I,' he said, "'have been busy. I've been ill.' "'Seriously?' she cried. Well, said Rodolphe, sitting down at her side on a footstool, no, it was because I did not want to come back. Why? Can you not guess? He looked at her again, but so hard that she lowered her head, blushing. He went on, Emma. Sir, she said, drawing back a little. Ah, you see, replied he in a melancholy voice that I was right not to come back, for this name, this name that fills my whole soul and that escaped me, you forbid me to use. Madame Bovary, why all the world calls you thus? Besides, it is not your name, it is the name of another. He repeated, of another, and he hid his face in his hands. Yes, I think of you constantly. The memory of you drives me to despair. Ah, forgive me, I will leave you. Farewell, I will go away, so far that you will never hear of me again. And yet, today, I know not what force impelled me towards you, for one does not struggle against heaven, one cannot resist the smile of angels, one is carried away by that which is beautiful, charming, adorable. It was the first time that Emma had heard such words spoken to herself and her pride, like one who reposes bathed in warmth, expanded softly and fully at this glowing language. But if I did not come, he continued, if I could not see you, at least I have gazed long on all that surrounds you. At night, every night, I arose, I came hither, I watched your house, its glimmering in the moon, the trees in the garden swaying before your window, and the little lamp, a gleam shining through the window-panes in the darkness. Ah, you never knew that there, so near you, so far from you, was a poor wretch. She turned towards him with a sob. Ah, oh, you are good, she said. No, I love you, that is all. You do not doubt that. Tell me one word, only one word. And Rodolphe imperceptibly glided from the footstool to the ground, but the sound of wooden shoes was heard in the kitchen, and he noticed the door of the room was not closed. How kind it would be of you, he went on, if you would humour a whim of mine. 
it was to go over her house. He wanted to know it, and Madame Bovary, seeing no objection to this, they both rose when Charles came in. "'Good morning, doctor,' Rodolphe said to him. The doctor, flattered at this unexpected title, launched out into obsequious phrases. Of this the other took advantage to pull himself together a little. "'Madame was speaking to me,' he then said, "'about her health.' Charles interrupted him. He had indeed a thousand anxieties. His wife's palpitations of the heart were beginning again. Then Rodolphe asked if riding would not be good. "'Certainly. Excellent. Just the thing. There's an idea. You ought to follow it up.' And as she objected that she had no horse, Monsieur Rodolphe offered one. She refused his offer. He did not insist. Then, to explain his visit, he said that his ploughman, the man of the bloodletting, still suffered from giddiness. "'I'll call round,' said Bovary. "'No, no, I'll send him to you. We'll come. That will be more convenient for you.' "'Ah, very good. I thank you.' And, as soon as they were alone, "'Why don't you accept Monsieur Boulanger's kind offer?' She assumed a sulky air, invented a thousand excuses, and finally declared that perhaps it would look odd. "'Well, what the deuce do I care for that?' said Charles, making a pirouette. "'Health before everything. You're wrong.' "'And how do you know I can ride when I haven't got a habit?' "'You must order one,' he answered." The riding habit decided her. When the habit was ready, Charles wrote to Monsieur Boulanger that his wife was at his command, and that they counted on his good nature. The next day, at noon, Rodolphe appeared at Charles's door with two saddle-horses. One had pink rosettes at his ears, and a deer-skin side-saddle. Rodolphe had put on high, soft boots, saying to himself that no doubt she had never seen anything like them. In fact, Emma was charmed with his appearance as he stood on the landing in his great velvet coat and white corduroy breeches. She was ready. She was waiting for him. Justin escaped from the chemist to see her start, and the chemist also came out. He was giving Monsieur Boulanger a little good advice. An accident happens so easily. Be careful. Your horses perhaps are meddlesome. She heard a noise above her. It was Felicite drumming on the window panes to amuse little Berta. The child blew her a kiss. Her mother answered with a wave of her whip. A pleasant ride, cried Monsieur Homais. Prudence, above all, prudence. And he flourished his newspaper as he saw them disappear. As soon as he felt the ground, Emma's horse set off at a gallop. Rodolphe galloped by her side. Now and then they exchanged a word. Her figure slightly bent, her hand well up, and her right arm stretched out. She gave herself up to the cadence of the movement that rocked her in her saddle. At the bottom of the hill, Rodolphe gave his horse its head. They started together at a bound. Then at the top, suddenly the horses stopped, and her large blue veil fell about her. It was early in October. There was fog over the land. Hazy clouds hovered on the horizon between the outlines of the hills. Others, rent asunder, floated up and disappeared. Sometimes, through a rift in the clouds, beneath a ray of sunshine, gleamed from afar the roofs of Yonville, with the gardens at the water's edge, the yards, the walls, and the church steeple. Emma half closed her eyes to pick out her house, and never had this poor village where she lived appeared so small.
From the height on which they were, the whole valley seemed an immense pale lake, sending off its vapour into the air. Clumps of trees here and there stood out like black rocks, and the tall lines of the poplars that rose above the mist were like a beach stirred by the wind. By the side, on the turf between the pines, a brown light shimmered in the warm atmosphere. The earth, ruddy like the powder of tobacco, deadened the noise of their steps, and with the edge of their shoes the horses as they walked kicked the fallen fir cones in front of them. Rodolphe and Emma thus went along the skirt of the wood. She turned away from time to time to avoid his look, and then she saw only the pine trunks in lines, whose monotonous succession made her a little giddy. The horses were panting, the leather of the saddles creaked. Just as they were entering the forest, the sun shone out. "'God protect us,' said Rodolphe. "'Do you think so?' she said. "'Forward, forward,' he continued." He chucked with his tongue. The two beasts set off at a trot. Long ferns by the roadside caught in Emma's stirrup. Rodolphe leant forward and removed them as they rode along. At other times, to turn aside the branches, he passed close to her, and Emma felt his knee brushing against her leg. The sky was now blue, the leaves no longer stirred. There were spaces full of heather in flower and plots of violets alternated with the confused patches of the trees that were grey, fawn, or golden-coloured, according to the nature of their leaves. Often in the thicket was heard the fluttering of wings, or else the hoarse soft cry of the ravens flying off amidst the oaks. They dismounted. Rodolphe fastened up the horses. She walked on in front on the moss between the paths but her long habit got in her way, although she held it up by the skirt, and Rodolphe, walking behind her, saw between the black cloth and the black shoe the fineness of her white stocking that seemed to him as if it were a part of her nakedness. She stopped. I'm tired, she said. Come, try again, he went on. Courage! Then, some hundred paces farther on, she again stopped and through her veil that fell sideways from her man's hat over her hips, her face appeared in a bluish transparency as if she were floating under azure waves. But where are we going? He did not answer. She was breathing irregularly. Rodolphe looked round him, biting his moustache. They came to a larger space where the coppice had been cut. They sat down on the trunk of a fallen tree, and Rodolphe began speaking to her of his love. He did not begin by frightening her with compliments. He was calm, serious, melancholy. Emma listened to him with bowed head, and stirred the bits of wood on the ground with the tip of her foot. But at the words, Are not our destinies now one? Oh, no, she replied, you know that well, it is impossible. She rose to go. He seized her by the wrist. She stopped. Then, having gazed at him for a few seconds with an amorous and humoured look, she said hurriedly, Ah, oh, do not speak of it again. Where are the horses? Let us go back. He made a gesture of anger and annoyance. She repeated, Where are the horses? Where, where are the horses? Then, smiling a strange smile, his pupil fixed, his teeth set, he advanced with outstretched arms. She recoiled, trembling. She stammered, Oh, you frightened me! You hurt me! Let me go! If it must be, he went on, his face changing, 
and he again became respectful, caressing, timid. She gave him her arm. They went back. He said, What was the matter with you? Why, I do not understand. You were mistaken, no doubt. In my soul you are as a Madonna on a pedestal in a place lofty, secure, immaculate. But I need you to live. I must have your eyes, your voice, your thoughts. Be my friend, my sister, my angel. And he put out his arm round her waist. She feebly tried to disengage herself. He supported her thus as they walked along. But they heard the two horses browsing on the leaves. Ah, oh, one moment, said Rodolphe. Do not let us go. Stay. He drew her farther on to a small pool where duckweeds made a greenness on the water. Faded water lilies lay motionless between the reeds. At the noise of their steps in the grass, frogs jumped away to hide themselves. I am wrong. I am wrong, she said. I am mad to listen to you. Why, Emma? Emma? Oh, Rodolph, said the young woman slowly, leaning on his shoulder. The cloth of her habit caught against the velvet of his coat. She threw back her white neck, swelling with a sigh and faltering in tears with a long shudder, and hiding her face, she gave herself up to him. The shades of night were falling. The horizontal sun passing between the branches dazzled the eyes. Here and there, around her, in the leaves or on the ground, trembled luminous patches, as if hummingbirds flying about had scattered their feathers. Silence was everywhere. Something sweet seemed to come forth from the trees. She felt her heart, whose beating had begun again, and the blood coursing through her flesh like a stream of milk. Then, far away, beyond the wood, on the other hills, she heard a vague, prolonged cry. A voice which lingered, and in silence she heard it mingling like music with the last pulsations of her throbbing nerves. Rodolphe, a cigar between his lips, was mending with his penknife one of the two broken bridles. They returned to Yonville by the same road. On the mud they saw again the traces of their horses side by side, the same thickets, the same stones to the grass. Nothing around them seemed changed, and yet for her something had happened more stupendous than if the mountains had moved in their places. Rodolphe now and again bent forward and took her hand to kiss it. She was charming on horseback, upright with her slender waist, her knee bent on the mane of her horse, her face somewhat flushed by the fresh air in the red of the evening. On entering Yonville, she made her horse prance in the road. People looked at her from the windows. At dinner, her husband thought she looked well, but she pretended not to hear him when he inquired about her ride and she remained sitting there with her elbow at the side of her plate between the two lighted candles. Emma, he said. What? Well, I spent the afternoon at Monsieur Alexandre's. He has an old cob, still very fine, only a little broken need, and that could be bought, I'm sure, for a hundred crowns. He added, and thinking it might please you, I have bespoken it, bought it. Have I done right? Do tell me. She nodded her head in assent. Then, a quarter of an hour later, Are you going up tonight? she asked. Yes, why? Oh, nothing, nothing, my dear. 
and as soon as she had got rid of Charles, she went and shut herself up in her room. At first she felt stunned. She saw the trees, the paths, the ditches, Rodolphe, and she again felt the pressure of his arm while the leaves rustled and the reeds whistled. But when she saw herself in the glass, she wondered at her face. Never had her eyes been so large, so black, of so profound a depth. Something subtle about her being transfigured her. She repeated, I have a lover, a lover, delighting at the idea as if a second puberty had come to her. So at last she was to know those joys of love, that fever of happiness of which she had despaired. She was entering upon marvels where all would be passion, ecstasy, delirium. An azure infinity encompassed her, the heights of sentiment sparkled under her thought, and ordinary existence appeared only afar off, down below, in the shade, through the interspaces of these heights. Then she recalled the heroines of the books that she had read, and the lyric legion of these adulterous women began to sing in her memory with the voice of sisters that charmed her. She became herself, as it were, an actual part of these imaginings, and realised the love-dream of her youth as she saw herself in this type of amorous women whom she had so envied. Besides, Emma felt a satisfaction of revenge. Had she not suffered enough? But now she triumphed, and the love so long pent up burst forth in full joyous bubblings. She tasted it without remorse, without anxiety, without trouble. The day following passed with a new sweetness. They made vows to one another. She told him of her sorrows. Rodolphe interrupted her with kisses, and she, looking at him through half-closed eyes, asked him to call her again by her name, to say that he loved her. They were in the forest as yesterday, in the shed of some wooden shoemaker. The walls were of straw, and the roof so low they had to stoop. They were seated side by side on a bed of dry leaves. From that day forth they wrote to one another regularly every evening. Emma placed her letter at the end of the garden by the river in a fissure of the wall. Rodolphe came to fetch it and put another there that she always found fault with as too short. One morning, when Charles had gone out before daybreak, she was seized with the fancy to see Rodolphe at once. She would go quickly to La Houchette, stay there an hour and be back again at Yonville while everyone was still asleep. This idea made her pant with desire, and she soon found herself in the middle of the field, walking with rapid steps without looking behind her. Day was just breaking. Emma, from afar, recognised her lover's house. Its two dovetailed weathercocks stood out black against the pale dawn. Beyond the farmhouse there was a detached building that she thought must be the chateau. She entered. It was as if the doors at her approach had opened wide of their own accord. A large, straight staircase led up to the corridor. Emma raised the latch of a door, and suddenly at the end of the room she saw a man sleeping. It was Rodolphe. She uttered a cry. "'You here? You here?' he repeated. "'How did you manage to come? Ah, your dress is damp.' "'I love you,' she answered, throwing her arms about his neck. 
this first piece of daring successful. Now, every time Charles went out early, Emma dressed quickly and slipped on tiptoe down the steps that led to the waterside. But when the plank for the cows was taken up, she had to go by the walls alongside of the river. The bank was slippery. In order not to fall, she caught hold of the tufts of faded wallflowers. Then she went across ploughed fields in which she sank, stumbling and clogging her thin shoes. Her scarf knotted round her head fluttered to the wind in the meadows. She was afraid of the oxen. She began to run. She arrived out of breath with rosy cheeks and breathing out from her whole person a fresh perfume of sap, of verdure, of the open air. At this hour Rodolphe still slept. It was like a spring morning coming into his room. The yellow curtains along the windows let a heavy whitish light enter softly. Emma felt about, opening and closing her eyes, while the drops of dew hanging from her hair formed, as it were, a topaz aureole around her face. Rodolphe, laughing, drew her to him and pressed her to his breast. Then she examined the apartment, opened the drawers of the tables, combed her hair with his comb, and looked at herself in his shaving-glass. Often she even put between her teeth the big pipe that lay on the table by the bed amongst lemons and pieces of sugar near a bottle of water. It took them a good quarter of an hour to say goodbye. Then Emma cried. She would have wished never to leave Rodolphe. Something stronger than herself forced her to him, so much so that one day, seeing her come unexpectedly, he frowned as one put out. "'What is the matter with you?' she said. "'Are you ill?' tell me. At last he declared with a serious air that her visits were becoming imprudent, that she was compromising herself. End of part two, chapter nine. Part two, chapter ten of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 10 Gradually, Rodolphe's fears took possession of her. At first, love had intoxicated her, and she had thought of nothing beyond. But now that he was indispensable to her life, she feared to lose anything of this, or even that it should be disturbed. When she came back from his house, she looked all about her anxiously watching every form that passed in the horizon and every village window from which she could be seen. She listened for steps, cries, the noise of the ploughs, and she stopped short, white and trembling more than the aspen leaves swaying overhead. One morning, as she was thus returning, she suddenly thought she saw the long barrel of a carbine that seemed to be aimed at her. It stuck out sideways from the end of a small tub, half buried in the grass at the edge of a ditch. Emma, half fainting with terror, nevertheless walked on, and a man stepped out of the tub like a jack-in-the-box. He had gaiters buckled up to the knees, his cap pulled down over his eyes, trembling lips and a red nose. It was Captain Binet, lying in ambush for wild ducks. "'You ought to have called out long ago,' he exclaimed. "'When one sees a gun, one should always give warning.' The tax collector was thus trying to hide the fright he had had, 
for a prefectorial order having prohibited duck hunting except in boats, Monsieur Binet, despite his respect for the laws, was infringing them, and so he every moment expected to see the rural guard turn up. But this anxiety whetted his pleasure, and all alone in his tub he congratulated himself on his luck and on his cuteness. At sight of Emma he seemed relieved from a great weight, and at once entered upon a conversation. "'It isn't warm, it's nipping.' Emma answered nothing. He went on. "'And you're out so early?' "'Yes,' she said, stammering. "'I'm just coming from the nurse where my child is.' "'Ah, very good, very good. "'For myself I'm here just as you see me since break of day, "'but the weather is so muggy that unless one had the bird at the mouth of the gun—' "'Good evening, Monsieur Binet,' she interrupted him, turning on her heel. "'Your servant, madame,' he replied dryly, and he went back into his tub. Emma regretted having left the tax collector so abruptly. No doubt he would form unfavourable conjectures. The story about the nurse was the worst possible excuse, everyone at Yonville knowing that the little Bovary had been at home with her parents for a year.' Besides, no one was living in this direction. This path led only to La Huchette. Binet, then, would guess whence she came, and he would not keep silence. He would talk, that was certain. She remained until evening, racking her brain with every conceivable lying project, and had constantly before her eyes that imbecile with the game-bag. Giles, after dinner, seeing her gloomy, proposed, by way of distraction, to take her to the chemist, and the first person she caught sight of in the shop was the tax collector again. He was standing in front of the counter, lit up by the gleams of the red bottle, and was saying, "'Please give me half an ounce of vitriol.' "'Justin!' cried the druggist. "'Bring us the sulphuric acid.' Then to Emma, who was going up to Madame Homais' room, "'No, stay here. It isn't worth while going up. She's just coming down. Warm yourself at the stove in the meantime. Excuse me. Good day, doctor,' for the chemist much enjoyed pronouncing the word doctor, as if addressing another by it reflected on himself some of the grandeur that he found in it. "'Now take care not to upset the mortars. You'd better fetch some chairs from the little room. You know very well that the armchairs are not to be taken out of the drawing-room.' And to put his armchair back in its place, he was darting away from the counter when Binet asked him for half an ounce of sugar acid. Sugar acid, said the chemist contemptuously. Don't know it. I'm ignorant of it. But perhaps you want oxalic acid. It is oxalic acid, isn't it? Binet explained that he wanted a corrosive to make himself some copper water with which to remove rust from his hunting things. Emma shuddered. The chemist began saying, "'Indeed, the weather is not propitious on account of the damp.' "'Nevertheless,' replied the tax collector with a sly look, "'there are people who like it.' She was stifling. "'And give me, will he never go?' thought she. "'Half an ounce of resin and turpentine, four ounces of yellow wax, "'and three half-ounces of animal charcoal, if you please, "'to clean the varnished leather of my togs.' The druggist was beginning to cut the wax when Madame Homais appeared, Irma in her arms, Napoleon by her side, and Attali following. She sat down on the velvet seat by the window, and the lad squatted down on a footstool, whilst his elder sister hovered round the jujube box near her papa. The latter was filling funnels and corking files, sticking on labels, making up parcels. 
All around him were silent. Only from time to time were heard the weights jingling in the balance, and a few low words from the chemist giving directions to his pupil. "'And how's the little woman?' suddenly asked Madame Homais. "'Silence!' exclaimed her husband, who was writing down some figures in his waste-book. "'Why didn't you bring her?' she went on in a low voice. "'Hush, hush!' said Emma, pointing with her finger to the druggist. But Binet, quite absorbed in looking over his bill, had probably heard nothing. At last he went out. Then Emma, relieved, uttered a deep sigh. "'How hard you are breathing,' said Madame Homais. "'Well, you see, it's rather warm,' she replied. So the next day they talked over how to arrange their rendezvous. Emma wanted to bribe her servant with a present, but it would be better to find some safe house at Yonville. Rodolphe promised to look for one. All through the winter, three or four times a week, in the dead of night, he came to the garden. Emma had on purpose taken away the key of the gate, which Charles thought lost. To call her, Rodolphe threw a sprinkle of sand at the shutters. She jumped up with a start, but sometimes he had to wait, for Charles had a mania for chatting by the fireside, and he would not stop. She was wild with impatience. If her eyes could have done it, she would have hurled him out at the window. At last she would begin to undress, then take up a book, and go on reading very quietly as if the book amused her. But Charles, who was in bed, called to her to come, too. "'Come now, Emma,' he said. "'It is time.' "'Yes, I am coming,' she answered. Then, as the candles dazzled him, he turned to the wall and fell asleep. She escaped, smiling, palpitating, undressed. Rodolphe had a large cloak. He wrapped her in it, and putting his arm round her waist, he drew her without a word to the end of the garden. It was in the arbour, on the same seat of old sticks, where formerly Léon had looked at her so amorously on the summer evenings. She never thought of him now. Behind them they heard the river flowing, and now and again on the bank the rustling of the dry reeds. Masses of shadow here and there loomed out in the darkness, and sometimes, vibrating with one movement, they rose up and swayed like immense black waves pressing forward to engulf them. The cold of the nights made them clasp closer. The sighs of their lips seemed to them deeper, their eyes that they could hardly see larger, and in the midst of the silence low words were spoken that fell on their souls sonorous, crystalline, and that reverberated in multiplied vibrations. When the night was rainy they took refuge in the consulting room between the cart shed and the stable. She lighted one of the kitchen candles that she had hidden behind the books. Rodolphe settled down there as if at home. The sight of the library, of the bureau, of the whole apartment, in fine, excited his merriment, and he could not refrain from making jokes about Charles, which rather embarrassed Emma. She would have liked to see him more serious, and even on occasions more dramatic, as, for example, when she thought she heard a noise of approaching steps in the alley. "'Someone is coming,' she said. "'He blew out the light. "'Have you your pistols?' "'Why?' "'Why, to defend yourself,' replied Emma. "'From your husband?' "'Oh, poor devil!' "'And Rodolphe finished his sentence with a gesture that said "'I could crush him with a flip of my finger.' "'She was wonder-stricken at his bravery, "'although she felt it a sort of indecency "'and a naive coarseness that scandalised her. 
Rodolphe reflected a good deal on the affair of the pistols. If she had spoken seriously, it was very ridiculous, he thought, even odious, for he had no reason to hate the good Charles, not being what is called devoured by jealousy. And on this subject Emma had taken a great vow that he did not think in the best of taste. Besides, she was growing very sentimental. She had insisted on exchanging miniatures. They had cut off handfuls of hair, and now she was asking for a ring, a real wedding ring, in sign of an eternal union. She often spoke to him of the evening chimes, of the voices of nature. Then she talked to him of her mother, hers, and of his mother, his. Rodolphe had lost his twenty years ago. Emma nonetheless consoled him with caressing words as one would have done a lost child, and she sometimes even said to him, gazing at the moon, I am sure that above there together they approve of our love. But she was so pretty. He had possessed so few women of such ingenuousness. This love without debauchery was a new experience for him, and drawing him out of his lazy habits, caressed at once his pride and his sensuality. Emma's enthusiasm, which his bourgeois good sense disdained, seemed to him in his heart of hearts charming, since it was lavished on him. Then, sure of being loved, he no longer kept up appearances, and insensibly his ways changed. He had no longer, as formerly, words so gentle that they made her cry, nor passionate caresses that made her mad, so that their great love, which engrossed her life, seemed to lessen beneath her like the water of a stream absorbed into its channel, and she could see the bed of it. She would not believe it. She redoubled in tenderness, and Rodolphe concealed his indifference less and less. She did not know if she regretted having yielded to him, or whether she did not wish, on the contrary, to enjoy him the more. The humiliation of feeling herself weak was turning to rancour, tempered by their voluptuous pleasures. It was not affection. It was like a continual seduction. He subjugated her. She almost feared him. Appearances, nevertheless, were calmer than ever, Rodolphe having succeeded in carrying out the adultery after his own fancy, and at the end of six months, when the springtime came, they were to one another like a married couple, tranquilly keeping up a domestic flame. It was the time of year when old Rouault sent his turkey in remembrance of the setting of his leg. The present always arrived with a letter. Emma cut the string that tied it to the basket and read the following lines. My dear children, I hope this will find you well and that this one will be as good as the others, for it seems to me a little more tender, if I may venture to say so, and heavier. But next time, for a change, I'll give you a turkey cock, unless you have a preference for some dabs, and send me back the hamper, if you please, with the two old ones. I've had an accident with my cart sheds, whose covering flew off one windy night among the trees. The harvest has not been over good, either. Finally, I don't know when I shall come to see you. It is so difficult now to leave the house, since I am alone, my poor Emma. Here there was a break in the lines, as if the old fellow had dropped his pen to dream a little while. 
For myself, I am very well, except for a cold I caught the other day at the fair at Yvetot, where I had gone to hire a shepherd, having turned away mine, because he was too dainty. How we are to be pitied with such a lot of thieves! Besides, he was also rude. I heard from a peddler who, travelling through your part of the country this winter, had a tooth drawn that Bovary was, as usual, working hard. That doesn't surprise me, and he showed me his tooth. We had some coffee together. I asked him if he had seen you, and he said not, but that he had seen two horses in the stables, from which I conclude that business is looking up. So much the better, my dear children, and may God send you every imaginable happiness. It grieves me not yet to have seen my dear little granddaughter, Bertha Bovary. I have planted an Orléans plum tree for her in the garden, under your room, and I won't have it touched unless it is to have jam made for her, by and by, that I will keep in the cupboard for her when she comes. Good-bye, my dear children. I kiss you, my girl, you too, my son-in-law, and the little one on both cheeks. I am, with best compliments, your loving father, Theodore Lowell. She held the coarse paper in her fingers for some minutes. The spelling mistakes were interwoven one with the other, and Emma followed the kindly thought that cackled right through it like a hen half hidden in the hedge of thorns. The writing had been dried with ashes from the hearth, for a little grey powder slipped from the letter onto her dress, and she almost thought she saw her father bending over the hearth to take up the tongs. How long since she had been with him! sitting on the footstool in the chimney-corner, where she used to burn the end of a bit of wood in the great flame of the sea-sedges. She remembered the summer evenings, all full of sunshine. The colts neighed when anyone passed by, and galloped, galloped. Under her window there was a beehive, and sometimes the bees, wheeling round in the light, struck against her window like rebounding balls of gold. What happiness there had been at that time! What freedom! What hope! What an abundance of illusions! Nothing was left of them now. She had got rid of them all in her soul's life, in all her successive conditions of life, maidenhood, her marriage, and her love, thus constantly losing them all her life through, like a traveller who leaves something of his wealth at every inn along his road. But what then made her so unhappy? What was the extraordinary catastrophe that had transformed her? And she raised her head, looking round as if to seek the cause of that which made her suffer. An April ray was dancing on the china of the what-not. The fire burned. Beneath her slippers she felt the softness of the carpet. The day was bright, the air warm, and she heard her child shouting with laughter. In fact, the little girl was just then rolling on the lawn in the midst of the grass that was being turned. She was lying flat on her stomach at the top of a rick. The servant was holding her by her skirt. Lestie Boudoir was raking by her side, and every time he came near she leant forward, beating the air with both her arms. "'Bring her to me,' said her mother, rushing to embrace her. "'How I love you, my poor child, how I love you!' Then, noticing that the tips of her ears were rather dirty, she rang at once for warm water and washed her changed her linen, her stockings, her shoes, asked a thousand questions about her health, as if on the return from a long journey, 
and finally, kissing her again and crying a little, she gave her back to the servant, who stood quite thunder-stricken at this excess of tenderness. That evening Rodolphe found her more serious than usual. That'll pass over, he concluded. It's a whim. And he missed three rendezvous running. When he did come, she showed herself cold and almost contemptuous. Ah, you're losing your time, my lady. And he pretended not to notice her melancholy sighs, nor the handkerchief she took out. Then Emma repented. She even asked herself why she detested Charles, if it had not been better to have been able to love him. But he gave her no opportunities for such a revival of sentiment, so that she was much embarrassed by her desire for sacrifice when the druggist just came in time to provide her with an opportunity. End of Part 2, Chapter 10「Two, Chapter Eleven of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part Two, Chapter Eleven. He had recently read a eulogy on a new method for curing clubfoot, and as he was a partisan of progress, he conceived the patriotic idea that Yonville, in order to keep to the fore, ought to have some operations for strephopody or clubfoot. For, he said to Emma, what risk is there? See, and he enumerated on his fingers the advantages of the attempt. Success, almost certain relief and beautifying of the patient, celebrity acquired by the operator. Why, for example, should not your husband relieve poor Hippolyte of the lion door? Note that he would not fail to tell about his cure to all the travellers, and then, Homais lowered his voice and looked around him, who is to prevent me from sending a short paragraph on the subject to the paper, eh? Goodness me, an article gets about, it is talked of, it ends by making a snowball, and who knows, who knows? In fact, Bovary might succeed. Nothing proved to Emma that he was not clever. And what a satisfaction for her to have urged him to a step by which his reputation and fortune would be increased. She only wished to lean on something more solid than love. Charles, urged by the druggist and by her, allowed himself to be persuaded. He sent to Rouen for Dr. Duval's volume, and every evening, holding his head between both hands, plunged into the reading of it. While he was studying equinus, virus, and vulgus, that is to say, catastrophopody, endostrophopody, and exostrophopody, or better, the various turnings of the foot downwards, inwards, and outwards, with the hypostrophopody and anastrophopody, otherwise torsion downward and upward, Monsieur Humet, with all sorts of arguments, was exhorting the lad at the inn to submit to the operation. You will scarcely feel, probably a slight pain, it is a simple prick, like a little bloodletting, less than an extraction of certain corns. Hippolyte, reflecting, rolled his stupid eyes. However, continued the chemist, it doesn't concern me, it's for your sake, for pure humanity. I should like to see you, my friend, rid of your hideous cordication, together with that waddling of the lumbar regions, which, whatever you say, must considerably interfere with you in the exercise of your calling. 
Then Homais represented to him how much jollier and brisker he would feel afterwards, and even gave him to understand that he would be more likely to please the women, and the stable-boy began to smile heavily. Then he attacked him through his vanity. "'Aren't you a man? Hang it! What would you have done if you had to go into the army, to go and fight beneath the standard? Ah, Hippolyte!' And Homais retired, declaring that he could not understand this obstinacy, this blindness in refusing the benefactions of science. The poor fellow gave way, for it was like a conspiracy. Binet, who never interfered with other people's business, Madame Lefrancois, Artemise, the neighbours, even the mayor, Monsieur Tuvache, everyone persuaded him, lectured him, shamed him. But what finally decided him was that it would cost him nothing. Bovary even undertook to provide the machine for the operation. This generosity was an idea of Emma's, and Charles consented to it, thinking in his heart of hearts that his wife was an angel. So, by the advice of the chemist, and after three fresh starts, he had a kind of box made by the carpenter, with the aid of the locksmith, that weighed about eight pounds, and in which iron, wood, sheer iron, leather, screws and nuts had not been spared. But to know which of Hippolyte's tendons to cut, it was necessary, first of all, to find out what kind of club foot he had. He had a foot forming almost a straight line with the leg, which, however, did not prevent it from being turned in, so that it was an equinus together with something of a virus, or else a slight virus with a strong tendency to equinus. But this equinus, wide in foot like a horse's hoof, with rugose skin, dry tendons and large toes, on which the black nails looked as if made of iron, the club foot ran about like a deer from morn till night. He was constantly to be seen on the place, jumping round the carts, thrusting his limping foot forwards. He seemed even stronger on that leg than the other. By dint of hard service it had acquired, as it were, moral qualities of patience and energy, and when he was given some heavy work he stood on it in preference to its fellow. Now, as it was an equinus, it was necessary to cut the tendon of Achilles, and, if need were, the anterior tibial muscle could be seen to afterwards for getting rid of the virus, for the doctor did not dare to risk both operations at once. He was even trembling already for fear of injuring some important region that he did not know. Neither Ambrose Pear, applying for the first time since Celsus, after an interval of fifteen centuries, a ligature to an artery, nor Jupitran, about to open an abscess in the brain, nor Jean Soule, when he first took away the superior maxilla, had hearts that trembled hands that shook, minds so strained, as Monsieur Bovary, when he approached Hippolyte, his tenotome between his fingers. And, as at hospitals, nearby on a table lay a heap of lint with waxed thread and many bandages, a pyramid of bandages, every bandage to be found at the druggist's. It was Monsieur Homais who, since morning, had been organising all these preparations, as much to dazzle the multitude as to keep up his illusions. Charles pierced the skin. A dry crackling was heard. The tendon was cut. The operation over. Hippolyte could not get over his surprise, but bent over Bovary's hands to cover them with kisses. "'Come, be calm,' said the druggist. "'Later on you will show your gratitude to your benefactor.' 
and he went down to tell the result to five or six inquirers who were waiting in the yard, and who fancied that Hippolyte would reappear walking properly. Then Charles, having buckled his patient into the machine, went home, where Emma, all anxiety, awaited him at the door. She threw herself on his neck. They sat down to table. He ate much, and at dessert he even wanted to take a cup of coffee, a luxury he only permitted himself on Sundays when there was company. The evening was charming, full of prattle, of dreams together. They talked about their future fortune, of the improvements to be made in their house. He saw people's estimation of him growing, his comforts increasing, his wife always loving him. And she was happy to refresh herself with a new sentiment, healthier, better, to feel at last some tenderness for this poor fellow who adored her. The thought of Rodolphe for one moment passed through her mind, but her eyes turned again to Charles. She even noticed with surprise that he had not bad teeth. They were in bed when Monsieur Homais, in spite of the servant, suddenly entered the room, holding in his hand a sheet of paper just written. It was the paragraph he intended for the Fanal de Rouen. He brought it for them to read. Read it yourself, said Bovary. He read, Despite the prejudices that still invest a part of the face of Europe like a net, the light nevertheless begins to penetrate our country places. Thus on Tuesday our little town of Yonville found itself the scene of a surgical operation which is at the same time an act of loftiest philanthropy. Monsieur Bovary, one of our most distinguished practitioners, Oh, that is too much, too much, said Charles, choking with emotion. No, no, not at all. What next? Performed an operation on a club-footed man. I have not used the scientific term because, you know, in a newspaper everyone would not perhaps understand. The masses must... No doubt, said Bovary, go on. I proceed, said the chemist. Monsieur Bovary, one of our most distinguished practitioners, performed an operation on a club-footed man called Hippolyte Tortin, stableman for the last twenty-five years at the Hotel of the Lion d'Or, kept by Widow Lefrancois at the Place d'Arnes. The novelty of the attempt and the interest incident to the subject had attracted such a concourse of persons that there was a veritable obstruction on the threshold of the establishment. The operation, moreover, was performed as if by magic, and barely a few drops of blood appeared on the skin, as though to say that the rebellious tendon had at last given way beneath the efforts of art. The patient, strangely enough, we affirm it as an eyewitness, complained of no pain. His condition up to the present time leaves nothing to be desired. Everything tends to show that his convalescence will be brief, and who knows even if at our next village festivity we shall not see our good Hippolyte figuring in the Bacchic dance in the midst of a chorus of joyous boon companions, and thus proving to all eyes by his verve and his capers his complete cure. Honour then to the generous savants, Honour to those indefatigable spirits who consecrate their vigils to the amelioration or to the alleviation of their kind. Honour, thrice honour. Is it not time to cry that the blind shall see, the deaf hear, the lame walk? But that which fanaticism formerly promised to its elect, science now accomplishes for all men. We shall keep our readers informed as to the successive phases of this remarkable cure. 
This did not prevent Mère Lefrancois from coming five days after, scared and crying out, Help! He is dying! I am going crazy! Charles rushed to the lion door, and the chemist, who caught sight of him passing along the place hatless, abandoned his shop. He appeared himself breathless, red, anxious, and asking everyone who was going up the stairs. Why, what's the matter with our interesting strephopode? The strephopode was writhing in hideous convulsions, so that the machine in which his leg was enclosed was knocked against the wall enough to break it. With many precautions, in order not to disturb the position of the limb, the box was removed and an awful sight presented itself. The outlines of the foot disappeared in such a swelling that the entire skin seemed about to burst and it was covered with ecchymosis caused by the famous machine. Hippolyte had already complained of suffering from it. No attention had been paid to him. They had to acknowledge that he had not been altogether wrong and he was freed for a few hours. But hardly had the edema gone down to some extent than the two savants thought fit to put back the limb in the apparatus, strapping it tighter to hasten matters. At last, three days after, Hippolyte being unable to endure it any longer, they once more removed the machine and were much surprised at the result they saw. The livid tumefaction spread over the leg, with blisters here and there, whence there oozed a black liquid. Matters were taking a serious turn. Hippolyte began to worry himself, and Mère Lefrancois had him installed in the little room near the kitchen, so that he might at least have some distraction. But the tax collector, who dined there every day, complained bitterly of such companionship. Then Hippolyte was removed to the billiard room. He lay there, moaning under his heavy coverings, pale with long beard, sunken eyes, and from time to time turning his perspiring head on the dirty pillow where the flies alighted. Madame Bovary went to see him. She brought him linen for his poultices. She comforted and encouraged him. Besides, he did not want for company, especially on market days, when the peasants were knocking about the billiard balls round him, fenced with the queues, smoked, drank, sang and brawled. How are you, they said, clapping him on the shoulder. Ah, you're not up to much, it seems. But it's your own fault. You should do this, do that. And then they told him stories of people who had all been cured by other remedies than his. Then, by way of consolation, they added, You give way too much. Get up. You coddle yourself like a king. All the same, old chap, you don't smell nice. Gangrene, in fact, was spreading more and more. Bovary himself turned sick at it. He came every hour, every moment. Hippolyte looked at him with eyes full of terror, sobbing, When shall I get well? Oh, save me! How unfortunate I am! How unfortunate I am! and the doctor left, always recommending him to diet himself. Don't listen to him, my lad, said Mère Lefrancois. Haven't they tortured you enough already? You will grow still weaker. Here, swallow this. And she gave him some good beef tea, a slice of mutton, a piece of bacon, and sometimes small glasses of brandy that he had not the strength to put to his lips. Abbe Bourassien, hearing that he was growing worse, asked to see him. He began by pitying his sufferings, declaring at the same time that he ought to rejoice at them, since it was the will of the Lord, and take advantage of the occasion to reconcile himself to heaven. 
for, said the ecclesiastic in a paternal tone. You rather neglected your duties. You were rarely seen at divine worship. How many years is it since you approached the holy table? I understand that your work, that the world of the world, may have kept you from the care for your salvation, but now is the time to reflect. Yet don't despair. I have known great sinners who are about to appear before God, you are not yet at this point, I know, had implored his mercy and who certainly died in the best frame of mind. Let us hope that, like them, you will set us a good example. Thus, as a precaution, what is to prevent you from saying morning and evening a Hail Mary full of grace and Our Father which art in heaven? Yes, do that, for my sake, to oblige me. That won't cost you anything. Will you promise me? The poor devil promised. The curé came back day after day. He chatted with the landlady and even told anecdotes interspersed with jokes and puns that Hippolyte did not understand. Then, as soon as he could, he fell back upon matters of religion, putting on an appropriate expression of face. His zeal seemed successful, for the clubfoot soon manifested a desire to go on a pilgrimage to Bon Secours if he were cured, to which Monsieur Bourassien replied that he saw no objection, two precautions were better than one, it was no risk anyhow. The druggist was indignant at what he called the manoeuvres of the priest. They were prejudicial, he said, to Hippolyte's convalescence, and he kept repeating to Madame Lefrancois, Leave him alone, leave him alone. You perturb his morals with your mysticism. But the good woman would no longer listen to him. He was the cause of it all. From a spirit of contradiction, she hung up near the bedside of the patient a basin filled with holy water and a branch of box. Religion, however, seemed no more able to succour him than surgery, and the invincible gangrene still spread from the extremities towards the stomach. It was all very well to vary the potions and change the poultices. The muscles each day rotted more and more, and at last Charles replied by an affirmative nod of the head when Mère Lefrancois asked him if she could not, as a forlorn hope, send for Monsieur Carnivet of Neufchâtel, who was a celebrity. A doctor of medicine, fifty years of age, enjoying a good position and self-possessed, Charles' colleague did not refrain from laughing disdainfully when he had uncovered the leg, mortified to the knee. Then, having flatly declared that it must be amputated, he went off to the chemists to rail at the asses who could have reduced a poor man to such a state. Shaking Monsieur Homais by the button of his coat, he shouted out in the shop, These are the inventions of Paris. These are the ideas of those gentry of the capital. It is like strabismus, chloroform, lithotrity, a heap of monstrosities that the government ought to prohibit. But they want to do the clever, and they cram you with remedies without troubling about the consequences. We are not so clever, not we. We are not savants, coxcombs, fops. We are practitioners, we cure people, and we should not dream of operating on anyone who is in perfect health. Straighten club feet, as if one could straighten club feet. It is as if one wished, for example, to make a hunchback straight. Homme suffered as he listened to this discourse, and he concealed his discomfort beneath a courtier's smile, for he needed to humour Monsieur Carnivet, whose prescription sometimes came as far as Yonville. So he did not take up the defence of Bovary. 
he did not make even a single remark. At renouncing his principles, he sacrificed his dignity to the more serious interests of his business. This amputation of the thigh by Dr. Carnivay was a great event in the village. On that day all the inhabitants got up earlier, and the Grand Rue, although full of people, had something lugubrious about it, as if an execution had been expected. At the grocer's they discussed Hippolyte's illness. The shops did no business, and Madame Tuvache, the mayor's wife, did not stare from her window. Such was her impatience to see the operator arrive. He came in his gig, which he drove himself. But the springs on the right side, having at length given way beneath the weight of his corpulence, it happened that the carriage, as it rolled along, leaned over a little, and on the other cushion near him could be seen a large box covered in red sheep-leather, whose three brass clamps shone grandly. After he had entered, like a whirlwind, the porch of the lion door, the doctor, shouting very loud, ordered them to unharness his horse. Then he went into the stable to see that she was eating her oats all right, for, on arriving at a patient's, he first of all looked after his mare and his gig. People even said about this, Ah, Monsieur Carnivet is a character. And he was the more esteemed for this imperturbable coolness. The universe to the last man might have died, and he would not have missed the smallest of his habits. Homais presented himself. I count on you, said the doctor. Are we ready? Come along. But the druggist, turning red, confessed that he was too sensitive to assist at such an operation. When one is a simple spectator, he said, the imagination, you know, is impressed, and then I have such a nervous system. Pshaw, interrupted Carnivay. On the contrary, you seem to be inclined to apoplexy. Besides, that doesn't astonish me, for you chemist fellows are always poking about your kitchens, which must end by spoiling your constitutions. Now just look at me. I get up every day at four o'clock. I shave with cold water, and I'm never cold. I don't wear flannels, and I never catch cold. My carcass is good enough. I live now in one way, now in another, like a philosopher taking potluck. That is why I am not squeamish like you, and it is as indifferent to me to carve a Christian as the first fowl that turns up. Then perhaps you will say, habit, habit. Then, without any consideration for Hippolyte, who was sweating with agony between his sheets, these gentlemen entered into a conversation in which the druggist compared the coolness of a surgeon to that of a general, and this comparison was pleasing to Carnivet, who launched out on the exigencies of his art. He looked upon it as a sacred office, although the ordinary practitioners dishonoured it. At last, coming back to the patient, he examined the bandages brought by Homais the same that had appeared for the club foot, and asked for someone to hold the limb for him. Lestiboudois was sent for, and Monsieur Canovet, having turned up his sleeves, passed into the billiard-room, while the druggist stayed with Artemise and the landlady, both whiter than their aprons, and with ears strained towards the door. Bovary, during this time, did not dare to stir from his house. He kept downstairs in the sitting-room by the side of the fireless chimney, his chin on his breast, his hands clasped, his eyes staring. What a mishap, he thought, what a mishap. Perhaps, after all, he had made some slip. He thought it over, but he could hit upon nothing. But the most famous surgeons also made mistakes, and that is what no one would ever believe. People, on the contrary, would laugh, jeer, 
It was spread as far as Forges, as Neufchâtel, as Rouen, everywhere. Who could say if his colleagues would not write against him? Polemics would ensue. He would have to answer in the papers. Hippolyte might even prosecute him. He saw himself dishonoured, ruined, lost, and his imagination, assailed by a world of hypotheses, tossed among them like an empty cask borne by the sea and floating upon the waves. Emma, opposite, watched him. She did not share his humiliation. She felt another, that of having supposed such a man was worth anything. As if twenty times already she had not sufficiently perceived his mediocrity. Charles was walking up and down the room. His boots creaked on the floor. Sit down, she said. You fidget me. He sat down again. How was it that she, she who was so intelligent, could have allowed herself to be deceived again? And through what deplorable madness had she thus ruined her life by continual sacrifices? She recalled all her instincts of luxury, all the privations of her soul, the sordidness of marriage, of the household, her dreams sinking into the mire like wounded swallows, all that she had longed for, all that she had denied herself, all that she might have had, and for what, for what? In the midst of the silence that hung over the village, a heart-rending cry rose on the air. Bovary turned white to fainting. She knit her brows with a nervous gesture, then went on. And it was for him, for this creature, for this man, who understood nothing, who felt nothing. For he was there, quite quiet, not even suspecting that the ridicule of his name would henceforth sully hers as well as his. She had made efforts to love him, and she had repented with tears for having yielded to another. But it was perhaps a vulgar, suddenly exclaimed Bovary, who was meditating. At the unexpected shock of this phrase, falling on her thoughts like a leaden bullet on a silver plate, Emma, shuddering, raised her head in order to find out what he meant to say, and they looked at the other in silence, almost amazed to see each other, so far sundered were they by their inner thoughts. Charles gazed at her with the dull look of a drunken man, while he listened motionless to the last cries of the sufferer that followed each other in long-drawn modulations, broken by sharp spasms like the far-off howling of some beast being slaughtered. Emma bit her wan lips, and rolling between her fingers a piece of coral that she had broken, fixed on Charles the burning glance of her eyes like two arrows of fire about to dart forth. Everything in him irritated her now. His face, his dress, what he did not say, his whole person, his existence in fine. She repented of her past virtue as of a crime, and what still remained of it rumbled away beneath the furious blows of her pride. She revelled in all the evil ironies of triumphant adultery. The memory of her lover came back to her with dazzling attractions. She threw her whole soul into it, borne away towards this image with a fresh enthusiasm, and Charles seemed to her as much removed from her life, as absent forever, as impossible and annihilated, as if he had been about to die and were passing under her eyes. There was a sound of steps on the pavement. 
Charles looked up, and through the lowered blinds he saw at the corner of the market, in the broad sunshine, Dr. Carnivay, who was wiping his brow with his handkerchief. Homais, behind him, was carrying a large red box in his hand, and both were going towards the chemist's. Then, with a feeling of sudden tenderness and discouragement, Charles turned to his wife, saying to her, Oh, kiss me, my own. Leave me, she said, red with anger. What is the matter? he asked, stupefied. Be calm, compose yourself. You know well enough that I love you. Come. Enough, she cried with a terrible look. And escaping from the room, Emma closed the door so violently that the barometer fell from the wall and smashed on the floor. Charles sank back into his armchair, overwhelmed, trying to discover what could be wrong with her, fancying some nervous illness, weeping and vaguely feeling something fatal and incomprehensible whirling round him. When Rodolphe came to the garden that evening, he found his mistress waiting for him at the foot of the steps on the lowest stair. They threw their arms round one another, and all their rancour melted like snow beneath the warmth of that kiss. End of Part 2, Chapter 11「Two, Chapter Twelve of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part Two, Chapter Twelve. They began to love one another again. Often, even in the middle of the day, Emma suddenly wrote to him. Then, from the window, made a sign to Justin, who, taking his apron off, ran quickly to La Huchette. Rodolphe would come. She had sent for him to tell him that she was bored, that her husband was odious, her life frightful. "'But what can I do?' he cried one day, impatiently. "'Ah, oh, if you would!' She was sitting on the floor between his knees, her hair loose, her look lost. "'Why, what?' said Rodolphe. She sighed. "'We would go and live elsewhere, somewhere.' "'You're really mad,' he said, laughing. "'How could that be possible?' She returned to the subject. He pretended not to understand, and turned the conversation. What he did not understand was all this worry about so simple an affair as love. She had a motive, a reason, and, as it were, a pendant to her affection. Her tenderness, in fact, grew each day with her repulsion to her husband. The more she gave up herself to the one, the more she loathed the other. Never had Charles seemed to her so disagreeable to have such stodgy fingers, such vulgar ways, to be so dull as when they found themselves together after her meeting with Rodolphe. Then, while playing the spouse and virtue, she was burning at the thought of that head whose black hair fell in a curl over the sunburnt brow, of that form at once so strong and elegant, of that man, in a word, who had such experience in his reasoning, such passion in his desires. It was for him that she filed her nails with the care of a chaser, and that there was never enough cold cream for her skin, nor of patchouli for her handkerchiefs. She loaded herself with bracelets, rings and necklaces. When he was coming, she filled the two large blue glass vases with roses, and prepared her room and her person like a courtesan expecting a prince. 
The servant had to be constantly washing linen, and all day Felicite did not stir from the kitchen where little Justin, who often kept her company, watched her at work. With his elbows on the long board on which she was ironing, he greedily watched all these women's clothes spread out about him, the dimity petticoats, the fichus, the collars, and the drawers with running strings, wide at the hips and growing narrower below. "'What is that for?' asked the young fellow, passing his hand over the crinoline or the hooks and eyes. "'Why, haven't you ever seen anything?' Felicite answered, laughing. "'as if your mistress, Madame Homais, didn't wear the same.' "'Oh, I dare say, Madame Homais,' and he added with a meditative air, "'as if she were a lady like Madame.' "'But Felicite grew impatient of seeing him hanging around her. "'She was six years older than he, "'and Theodore, Monsieur Guillaume's servant, "'was beginning to pay court to her. "'Let me alone,' she said, moving her pot of starch. "'You'd better be off and pound almonds.' You're always dangling about women. Before you meddle with such things, bad boy, wait till you've got a beard to your chin. Oh, don't be cross. I'll go and clean her boots. And he at once took down from the shelf Emma's boots, all coated with mud, the mud of the rendezvous that crumbled into powder beneath his fingers and that he watched as it gently rose in a ray of sunlight. "'How afraid you are of spoiling them,' said the servant, who wasn't so particular when she cleaned them herself, because as soon as the stuff of the boots was no longer fresh, Madame handed them over to her. Emma had a number in her cupboard that she squandered, one after the other, without Charles allowing himself the slightest observation. So, also, he dispersed three hundred francs for a wooden leg that she thought proper to make a present of to Hippolyte. Its top was covered with cork, and it had spring joints, a complicated mechanism, covered over by black trousers ending in a patent leather boot. But Hippolyte, not daring to use such a handsome leg every day, begged Madame Bovary to get him another, more convenient one. The doctor, of course, had again to defray the expense of this purchase. So, little by little, the stableman took up his work again. One saw him running about the village as before, and when Charles heard from afar the sharp noise of the wooden leg, he at once went in another direction. It was Monsieur Leroux, the shopkeeper, who had undertaken the order. This provided him with an excuse for visiting Emma. He chatted with her about the new goods from Paris, about a thousand feminine trifles, made himself very obliging, and never asked for his money. Emma yielded to this lazy mode of satisfying all her caprices. Thus she wanted to have a very handsome riding-whip that was at an umbrella-maker's at Rouen to give to Rodolphe. The week after, Monsieur Leroux placed it on her table. But the next day he called on her with a bill for 275 francs, not counting the centime. Emma was much embarrassed. All the drawers of the writing-table were empty. They owed over a fortnight's wages to Lestie Baudoir, two quarters to the servant, for any quantity of other things, and Bovary was impatiently expecting Monsieur Dozeray's account, which he was in the habit of paying every year about midsummer. She succeeded at first in putting off Leroux. At last he lost patience. He was being sued. His capital was out and unless he got some in, he should be forced to take back all the goods she had received. "'Oh, very well, take them,' said Emma. 
I was only joking, he replied. The only thing I regret is the whip. My word, I'll ask monsieur to return it to me. No, no, she said. Ah, I've got you, thought Leroux. And, certain of his discovery, he went out repeating to himself in an undertone and with his usual low whistle, Good, we shall see, we shall see. She was thinking how to get out of this, when the servant coming in put on the mantelpiece a small roll of blue paper from Monsieur Dozeray's. Emma pounced upon and opened it. It contained fifteen Napoleons. It was the account. She heard Charles on the stairs, threw the gold to the back of her drawer, and took out the key. Three days after, Leroux reappeared. "'I have an arrangement to suggest to you,' he said. "'If, instead of the sum agreed on, you would take—' "'Here it is,' she said, placing fourteen Napoleons in his hand. The tradesman was dumbfounded. Then, to conceal his disappointment, he was profuse in apologies and proffers of service, all of which Emma declined. Then she remained a few moments, fingering in the pocket of her apron the two five-franc pieces that he had given her in change. She promised herself she would economise in order to pay back later on. Sure, she thought, he won't think about it again. Besides the riding whip with its silver gilt handle, Rodolphe had received a seal with the motto Amor nel cor, furthermore a scarf for a muffler, and finally a cigar case exactly like the Viscount's that Charles had formerly picked up in the road and that Emma had kept. These presents, however, humiliated him. He refused several. She insisted, and he ended by obeying, thinking her tyrannical and over-exacting. Then she had strange ideas. When midnight strikes, she said, you must think of me. And if he confessed that he had not thought of her, there were floods of reproaches that always ended with the eternal question, do you love me? Why, of course I love you, he answered. A great deal? Certainly. You haven't loved any others? <laughs> Did you think you'd got a virgin? He exclaimed, laughing. Emma cried and he tried to console her, adorning his protestations with puns. Oh, she went on, I love you. I love you so that I could not live without you, do you see? There are times when I long to see you again, when I'm torn by all the anger of love. I ask myself, where is he? Perhaps he is talking to other women. They smile upon him. He approaches. Oh, no, no one else pleases you. There are some more beautiful, but I love you best. I know how to love best. I am your servant, your concubine. You are my king, my idol. You are good, you are beautiful, you are clever, you are strong. He had so often heard these things said that they did not strike him as original. Emma was like all his mistresses and the charm of novelty, gradually falling away like a garment, laid bare the eternal monotony of passion that has always the same forms and the same language. He did not distinguish this man of so much experience, the difference of sentiment beneath the sameness of expression. Because lips, libertine and venal, had murmured such words to him, he believed but little in the candour of hers. 
Exaggerated speeches hiding mediocre affections must be discounted, as if the fullness of the soul did not sometimes overflow in the emptiest metaphors, since no one can ever give the exact measure of his needs, nor of his conceptions, nor of his sorrows. And since human speech is like a cracked tin kettle on which we hammer out tunes to make bears dance when we long to move the stars. But with that superior critical judgment that belongs to him who, in no matter what circumstance, holds back, Rodolphe saw other delights to be got out of this love. He thought all modesty in the way. He treated her quite sans façon. He made of her something supple and corrupt. Hers was an idiotic sort of attachment, full of admiration for him, a voluptuousness for her, a beatitude that benumbed her. Her soul sank into this drunkenness, shriveled up, drowned in it, like Clarence in his butt of Malmsey. By the mere effect of her love, Madame Bovary's manners changed. Her looks grew bolder, her speech more free. She even committed the impropriety of walking out with Monsieur Rodolphe, a cigarette in her mouth, as if to defy the people. At last, those who still doubted, doubted no longer, when one day they saw her getting out of the hirondelle, her waist squeezed into a waistcoat like a man, and Madame Bovary Senior, who, after a fearful scene with her husband, had taken refuge at her son's, was not the least scandalised of the women folk. Many other things displeased her. First, Charles had not attended to her advice about the forbidding of novels. Then the ways of the house annoyed her. She allowed herself to make some remarks, and there were quarrels, especially one on account of Felicite. Madame Bovary Senior, the evening before, passing along the passage, had surprised her in company of a man, a man with a brown collar, about forty years old, who at the sound of her step had quickly escaped through the kitchen. Then Emma began to laugh, but the good lady grew angry declaring that unless morals were to be laughed at, one ought to look after those of one's servants. "'Where were you brought up?' asked the daughter-in-law, with so impertinent a look that Madame Bovary asked her if she were not perhaps defending her own case. "'Leave the room,' said the young woman, springing up with a bound. "'Emma! Mama! cried Charles, trying to reconcile them. But both had fled in their exasperation. Emma was stamping her feet as she repeated, Oh, what manners! What a peasant! He ran to his mother. She was beside herself. She stammered, She is an insolent, giddy-headed thing, or perhaps worse. And she was for leaving at once if the other did not apologise. So Charles went back again to his wife and implored her to give way. He knelt to her. She ended by saying, Very well, I'll go to her. And in fact, she held out her hand to her mother-in-law with the dignity of a marchioness, as she said, Excuse me, madame. Then, having gone up again to her room, she threw herself flat on her bed and cried there like a child, her face buried in the pillow. She and Rodolphe had agreed that in the event of anything extraordinary occurring, she should fasten a small piece of white paper to the blind, so that, if by chance he happened to be in Yonville, he could hurry to the lane behind the house. Emma made the signal. She had been waiting three-quarters of an hour when she suddenly caught sight of Rodolphe at the corner of the market. She felt tempted to open the window and call him, 
but he had already disappeared. She fell back in despair. Soon, however, it seemed to her that someone was walking on the pavement. It was he, no doubt. She went downstairs, crossed the yard. He was there, outside. She threw herself into his arms. Do take care, he said. Ah, oh, if you knew, she replied. And she began telling him everything, hurriedly, disjointedly, exaggerating the facts, inventing many, and so prodigal of parentheses that he understood nothing of it. Come, my poor angel, courage, be comforted, be patient. But I have been patient, I have suffered for four years. A love like ours ought to show itself in the face of heaven. They torture me, I can bear it no longer, save me. She clung to Rodolphe. Her eyes, full of tears, flashed like flames beneath a wave. Her breast heaved. He had never loved her so much, so that he lost his head and said, What is it? What do you wish? Take me away, she cried. Carry me off. Oh, I pray you. And she threw herself upon his mouth, as if to seize there the unexpected consent, if breathed forth in a kiss. But, Rodolphe resumed, what? Your little girl. She reflected a few moments, then replied, We will take her. It can't be helped. What a woman, he said to himself, watching her as she went. For she had run into the garden. Someone was calling her. On the following days, Madame Bovary Senior was much surprised at the change in her daughter-in-law. Emma, in fact, was showing herself more docile, and even carried her deference so far as to ask for a recipe for pickling gherkins. Was it the better to deceive them both, or did she wish by a sort of voluptuous stoicism to feel the more profoundly the bitterness of the things she was about to leave? But she paid no heed to them. On the contrary, she lived as lost in the anticipated delight of her coming happiness. It was an eternal subject for conversation with Rodolphe. She leant on his shoulder, murmuring, Ah, when we are in the mail coach, do you think about it? Can it be? It seems to me that the moment I feel the carriage start, it will be as if we were rising in a balloon, as if we were setting out for the clouds. Do you know that I count the hours? And you? Never had Madame Bovary been so beautiful as at this period. She had that indefinable beauty that results from joy, from enthusiasm, from success, and that is only the harmony of temperament with circumstances. Her desires, her sorrows, the experience of pleasure and her ever young illusions that had, as soil and rain and winds and the sun make flowers grow, gradually developed her, and she at length blossomed forth in all the plenitude of her nature. Her eyelids seemed chiselled expressly for her long, amorous looks in which the pupil disappeared, while a strong inspiration expanded her delicate nostrils and raised the fleshy corners of her lips shaded in the light by a little black down. One would have thought that an artist apt in conception had arranged the curls of hair upon her neck. They fell in a thick mass, negligently, and with the changing chances of their adultery that unbound them every day. Her voice now took more mellow inflections, her figure also. Something subtle and penetrating escaped even from the folds of her gown and from the line of her foot. Charles, as when they were first married, thought her delicious and quite irresistible. 
When he came home in the middle of the night, he did not dare to wake her. The porcelain nightlight threw a round, trembling gleam upon the ceiling, and the drawn curtains of the little cot formed, as it were, a white hut standing out in the shade, and by the bedside Giles looked at them. He seemed to hear the light breathing of his child. She would grow big now. Every season would bring rapid progress. He already saw her coming from school as the day drew in, laughing with ink stains on her jacket and carrying her basket on her arm. Then she would have to be sent to the boarding school. That would cost much. How was it to be done? Then he reflected. He thought of hiring a small farm in the neighbourhood that he would superintend every morning on his way to his patients. He would save up what he had brought in. He would put it in the savings bank. Then he would buy shares somewhere, no matter where. Besides, his practice would increase. He counted upon that, for he wanted Bertha to be well educated to be accomplished, to learn to play the piano. Ah, how pretty she would be later on when she was fifteen, when, resembling her mother, she would, like her, wear large straw hats in the summertime. From a distance they would be taken for two sisters. He pictured her to himself, working in the evening by their side beneath the light of the lamp. She would embroider him slippers. She would look after the house. She would fill all the home with her charm and her gaiety. At last they would think of her marriage. They would find some young good fellow with a steady business. He would make her happy. This would last forever. Emma was not asleep. She pretended to be, and while he dozed off by her side, she awakened to other dreams. To the gallop of four horses, she was carried away for a week towards a new land, whence they would return no more. They went on and on, their arms entwined without a word. Often from the top of a mountain they suddenly glimpsed some splendid city with domes and bridges and ships, forests of citron trees and cathedrals of white marble on whose pointed steeples were storks' nests. They went at a walking pace because of the great flagstones, and on the ground there were bouquets of flowers offered you by women dressed in red bodices. They heard the chiming of bells, the neighing of mules, together with the murmur of guitars and the noise of fountains, whose rising spray refreshed heaps of fruit arranged like a pyramid at the foot of pale statues that smiled beneath playing waters. And then, one night, they came to a fishing village, where brown nets were drying in the wind along the cliffs and in front of the huts. It was there that they would stay. They would live in a low, flat-roofed house shaded by a palm tree in the heart of a gulf by the sea. They would row in gondolas, swing in hammocks, and their existence would be easy and large as their silk gowns, warm and star-spangled as the nights they would contemplate. However, in the immensity of this future that she conjured up, nothing special stood forth. The days, all magnificent, resembled each other like waves, and it swayed in the horizon, infinite, harmonised, azure, and bathed in sunshine. But the child began to cough in her cot, or Bovary snored more loudly, and Emma did not fall asleep till morning when the dawn whitened the windows, and when little Justin was already in the square, taking down the shutters of the chemist's shop. She had sent for Monsieur Leroux, and had said to him, I want a cloak, a large lined cloak, with a deep collar. You are going on a journey? he asked. No, but 
Never mind. I may count on you, may I not, and quickly? He bowed. Besides, I shall want, she went on, a trunk, not too heavy, handy. Yes, yes, I understand, about three feet by a foot and a half, as they are being made just now, and a travelling bag. Decidedly, thought Leroux, there's a row on here. And, said Madame Bovary, taking her watch from her belt, take this, you can pay yourself out of it. But the tradesmen cried out that she was wrong. They knew one another. Did he doubt her? What childishness! She insisted, however, on his taking at least the chain, and Leroux had already put it in his pocket and was going when she called him back. You will leave everything at your place. As to the cloak, she seemed to be reflecting, do not bring it either. You can give me the maker's address and tell him to have it ready for me. It was the next month that they were to run away. She was to leave Yonville as if she was going on some business to Rouen. Rodolphe would have booked the seats, procured the passports, and even have written to Paris in order to have the whole mail-coach reserved for them as far as Marseilles, where they would buy a carriage and go on thence without stopping to Genoa. She would take care to send her luggage to Leroux, whence it would be taken direct to the Hirondelle, so that no one would have any suspicion. And in all this there was never any allusion to the child. Rodolphe avoided speaking to her. Perhaps he no longer thought about it. He wished to have two more weeks before him to arrange some affairs. Then, at the end of the week, he wanted two more. Then he said he was ill. Next, he went on a journey. The month of August passed, and after all these delays, they decided that it was to be irrevocably fixed for the 4th September, a Monday. At length, the Saturday before, arrived. Rodolphe came in the evening, earlier than usual. Everything is ready? she asked him. Yes. Then they walked round a garden bed and went to sit down near the terrace on the curbstone of the wall. You are sad, said Emma. No? Why? And yet he looked at her strangely in a tender fashion. Is it because you are going away, she went on, because you are leaving what is dear to you, your life? Ah, I understand. I have nothing in the world. You are all to me, so shall I be to you. I will be your people, your country. I will tend, I will love you. How sweet you are, he said, seizing her in his arms. Really, she said with a voluptuous laugh, do you love me? Swear it then. Do I love you? Love you? I adore you, my love. The moon, full and purple-coloured, was rising right out of the earth at the end of the meadow. She rose quickly between the branches of the poplars that hid her here and there like a black curtain pierced with holes. Then she appeared dazzling with whiteness in the empty heavens that she lit up, and now, sailing more slowly along, let fall upon the river a great stain that broke up into an infinity of stars, and the silver sheen seemed to writhe through the very depths like a heedless serpent covered with luminous scales. It also resembled some monster candelabra all along which sparkled drops of diamonds running together. The soft night was about them. Masses of shadow filled the branches. Emma, her eyes half-closed, breathed in with deep sighs the fresh wind that was blowing. They did not speak, lost as they were in the rush of their reverie. 
the tenderness of the old days came back to their hearts, full and silent as the flowing river, with the softness of the perfume of the syringes, and threw across their memories shadows more immense and more sombre than those of the still willows that lengthened out over the grass. Often some night animal, hedgehog or weasel, setting out on the hunt, disturbed the lovers, or sometimes they heard a ripe peach falling all alone from the espalier. Ah, what a lovely night, said Rodolphe. We shall have others, replied Emma, and as if speaking to herself. Yes, it will be good to travel. And yet why should my heart be so heavy? Is it dread of the unknown? The effect of habits left, or rather... No, it is the excess of happiness. How weak I am, am I not? Forgive me. There is still time, he cried. Reflect, perhaps you may repent. Never, she cried impetuously, and coming closer to him. What ill could come to me? There is no desert, no precipice, no ocean I would not traverse with you. The longer we live together, the more it will be like an embrace, every day closer, more heart to heart. There will be nothing to trouble us, no cares, no obstacle. We shall be alone, all to ourselves, eternally. I'll speak, answer me. At regular intervals he answered, yes, yes. She had passed her hands through his hair, and she repeated in a childlike voice, despite the big tears which were falling, Rodolphe, Rodolphe, ah, Rodolphe, dear little Rodolphe. Midnight struck. Midnight, said she. Come, it is tomorrow, one day more. He rose to go, and as if the movement he made had been the signal for their flight, Emma said suddenly, assuming a gay air, You have the passport? Yes. You are forgetting nothing? No. Are you sure? Certainly. It is at the Hotel de Provence, is it not, that you will wait for me at midday? He nodded. Till tomorrow, then, said Emma, in a last caress, and she watched him go. He did not turn round. She ran after him, and leaning over the water's edge between the bulrushes, Tomorrow, she cried. He was already on the other side of the river, and walking fast across the meadow. After a few moments, Rodolphe stopped, and when he saw her with her white gown gradually fade away in the shade like a ghost, he was seized with such a beating of the heart that he leant against a tree lest he should fall. What an imbecile I am, he said with a fearful oath. No matter. She was a pretty mistress. And immediately Emma's beauty with all the pleasures of their love came back to him. For a moment he softened. Then he rebelled against her. For, after all, he exclaimed, gesticulating, I can't exile myself, have a child on my hands. He was saying these things to give himself firmness. And besides, the worry, the expense. Ah, oh, no, 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 a thousand times no. That would be too stupid. End of part two, chapter twelve.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.